Airlines Confidential with Ben Valdanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Aerodata, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. Aerodata is a Garmin company. Sidley Austin, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies. Visit sidley.com aviation. And Seabury Securities, global reach, global scale. seaburysecurities.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. This is Airlines Confidential. I'm Ben Baldanza, and thanks for joining us. Chris and I have had some personal and business international travel the last few weeks and have tried to keep the weekly schedule up, including some great guests. We're both back on the ground in the U.S. now with lots to cover. And Chris, I know you had the more ambitious itinerary with international connections and regional flights in Europe. How did all that go? We've been talking about the mess that Amsterdam's in. Did you go through there? I avoided Amsterdam, uh, most definitely. Uh, although I talked to a taxi driver in Athens who did get caught up in the mess in Amsterdam in May. Admittedly, I was a little nervous departing on the last day of June from DFW through Chicago to Athens, Greece. So I was thinking like, we're going to hit weather somewhere along the way. We're going to hit some kind of staffing issue and a crew issue at the end of the month. My daughter and her fiance were flying from New York and meeting up with us. So we were coming from different cities. Every flight was on time. Every flight was great. American did a great job on all the operations uh, we had a couple of regional flights within Greece on Aegean Airlines from Athens to a beautiful island uh, called Kefalonia. So again, a little anxious about European ground handling. That went well. So uh, we had a great trip. All the bags arrived all the time, on time, no problems. So it was 10 great days of travel. So I'm glad to be back, but um, we had a great time. Although from the headlines, were, there were tens of thousands of flights and probably hundreds of thousands of passengers that weren't so lucky. So let's cover off a few news items, then we're going to get to our guest, Graham Webb, Chief Sustainability Officer Pratt Whitney. So buckle up. Ben, you've been a little more attentive to what's been going on while I've been eating, drinking, and lounging my way around Greece for 10 days. There seems to have been a number of operational challenges. Delta delays and cancellations escalated. And then they made headlines with an open call to encourage anyone who wanted to change flights during July 4th week, and then offering very generous incentives at the airport. I saw one headline of somebody getting $10,000 to take another flight. Out of the UK, BA continued to have problems, as did EasyJet, their problems leading to the resignation of the COO at EasyJet. United was blaming the FAA for air traffic control delays. While airlines were struggling to get passengers where they wanted to go, they seemed to drop the bag, no pun intended, on baggage handling with reports of tens of thousands of delayed and lost bags around the globe. So what are your thoughts on the state of airline travel as we crawl out of this always busy July 4th week? We're not out of it yet. That's that's what I think the issue is. Although... 
July 4th weekend was better than most people expected. Maybe it's just a matter of having very low expectations for a busy July 4th weekend, given what has happened. But July 4th ran more on time with fewer canceled flights than many people were expecting, prompting sort of early in the week following the media to talk about the fact that, hey, July 4th wasn't that bad. That said, there were still more cancellations than there have been, you know, a year ago before all this sort of mess seemed to start happening. So I don't think we're out of it yet. Summer's going to be busy at least until the middle of August. That's where bookings are the highest and Middle of August tends to be the airline end of summer travel. And so I think airlines are going to continue to face challenges of operational struggles, staffing shortages, and others as we get through this summer because they just simply can't fix the staffing problems quickly enough to affect the next few weeks. That's the reality of it. They can hire, they can train, they can onboard, they can do all kinds of things to increase the pipeline. But what that's going to do is hopefully help next spring and next summer. It's not going to help the next six weeks. So the industry has all pulled back a bit in terms of capacity. Everybody's flying a bit less to try to make it a little better. And I think July 4th proved that when flying a little less, the industry can keep up a little better. So let's hope that that becomes the motto and the mantra for the industry over the next month and a half of what should be a continuing busy summer. Yeah, there were just so many different numbers as I was trying to get caught up on the news. I mean, you know, Alaska, which has had some operational issues you know, during the spring, they had a very good week last week and they like rushed out there, you know, talking about industry leading completion rates of 99.8 and industry leading on time rates of 87% and the like. Then I was reading somewhere else that Swissport, the European baggage handling and grand handling company out of Europe was down like 20,000 employees from 2019 and they're struggling. Um, there's, so there's just lots of different um, numbers floating out there in the context of, you know, easy jet cancellations or whatever else. So it's, it's kind of hard to keep up with it all, but you know, I think that you just got to stay focused and just wake up every day with the goal to operate that day. Well, and hopefully all the planes end up where they're supposed to be that evening and they start again the next day. That makes sense. I'm very glad that you didn't experience problems on your trip, Chris, on my trip to London, everything went well, too, including a connection from D.C. to New York to get the New York-London flight. And that was two different airlines, and everything worked well there, too. So maybe you and I were just lucky, but at least we have some anecdotal evidence that some people are getting where they need to on time. The biggest thing that you mentioned that I reacted to during all this was the $10,000 offer to get people 
off the plane that happened at Delta. That was news for about 24 hours. I never heard a formal position from Delta on that, but I did hear one passenger who said that he and his wife had a really big argument because he wanted to get $20,000 for the two of them, but she really wanted to go. I, I thought that was actually kind of funny. So related to all this, kind of sort of, I wanted to ask you as the king of low cost, American found themselves in the middle of a potential nasty situation when a computer glitch dropped flight deck crews from more than 12,000 flights in July. So they were looking at some real difficult uh, operating challenges if pilots didn't pick up these trips. American quickly reached a deal with the Allied Pilots Association to pay all flight crew members triple pay rates as they reinstated the flight schedule and to pick up those trips again. So if you were still sitting in the C-suite and the VP of flight and the CFO came in and said, we got a great way to solve this. We're going to pay everybody triple pay <laughs> to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. What would Ben have said? Well, there's a couple reactions to this. One is that incentives often work, and that's true with passengers you put in bag fees, people bring fewer bags, right? Those things happen. So you offer triple pay, you would expect that more pilots would pick up flights, fewer would call in sick, especially when they're not sick, right? And things like that. And so I hope this works for American. My concern would be sort of an economic one, Chris, in what's often called reference pricing. Reference pricing is the price we think something should cost. So if you walked into a fast food restaurant and the hamburgers were $50, right, you would immediately know something's wrong. Whereas if you went to Morton's for a steak and the steak was $50, you wouldn't think there's something wrong there, right? Now, if the steak were $4.99, you might think there's something wrong. That's what reference pricing is. We have some ideas in our mind of what things should cost. The challenge with, off with offering triple pay is does it change the reference price among pilots of what they should be paid on a regular basis? And will what might be a very rational and reasonable offer of a pay increase in the next contract just look small and puny in response to compared to when we used to get triple pay? And so my concern as to whether or not this causes challenges for the industry going forward. That said, I'm not sure that there's anything else American could have done to put Humpty Dumpty back together again this July than to offer something like this. But I'm concerned as to whether or not that starts to set precedents that are hard to maintain. Yeah, I mean, I... Well, I will stand corrected if somebody writes in and says, my entire schedule was impacted. My guess is these were randomly dropped flights, and so it wasn't like a group of pilots are all going to get triple pay for their entire schedule for the month. It's just going to be on, the, on those flights that were dropped that they agree to pick back up again. But I think, to your point, I think 
the triple pay doesn't become a reference point for a base salary as much as for any kind of operational issues or overtime or whatever else. You're you're kind of introducing the notion of triple pay as the baseline. Yeah, let's let's hope it stays that way though. And but that said, you know, I hope this works for American too, because we want the industry to run as reliably as possible during what is continuing to be a very demand-heavy kind of summer. Yep. And, and to be clear, we're not criticizing as much as – and I thought it was great, actually, that both sides came very quickly to a, to a, a resolution. That Absolutely. Was important. That was important to maintain public confidence. Well, this week's show is brought to you by Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is delivering industry-leading sustainability, mature dispatch reliability, and world-class operating costs. Now with the GTF Advantage engine for the Airbus A320neo family, the best is getting even better. Learn more at pwgtf.com advantage. And we're very pleased to welcome another new supporter to the show. Airlines Confidential is now sponsored in part by Sidley Austin, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies transforming the skies. From the ramp to the boardroom, Sidley provides the broadest range of legal services to clients on the most critical issues facing the industry today. Sidley combines unmatched experience with top-tier capabilities across a vast global footprint. Visit sidley.com slash aviation for more information. Chris, you probably saw this while you were on vacation, that President Biden nominated a new administrator for the Federal Aviation Administration. Philip Washington is the current chief executive of Denver International Airport, but that is just the first bit of his aviation experience. He's a longtime executive leading large mass transit systems, including Denver and Los Angeles. What's your take on the criticism that he's short on aviation experience, even though he's long on transit experience at such a critical time for the FAA? Yeah, I saw that. I don't know Mr. Washington, except I do know he's got a reputation for being an excellent manager and a decision maker. And so I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt here. I don't think you need to know how to fly a plane to lead. There's so many other important functions with regard to safety oversight, ATC staffing and modernization, expanding infrastructure, unruly passenger behavior, so having a strong leader is, I think, the most critical thing for the FAA right now. And there's lots of expertise within the FAA. He can bring the experts together and they can hammer out solutions. He can ask good probing questions. And so I think his experience and reputation as a very strong manager is, is critical and to his benefit. So I'm very optimistic about this appointment. I'm optimistic too, Chris. I like his background and 
while pilots have done a good job leading the FAA, think of guys like Randy Babbitt, for example, I think it's good to bring someone in who understands how big organizations work, maybe brings a broader experience around how you make operations really work for customers and stakeholders. So I'm optimistic about his background as well. I hope he does a terrific job. And he's working for a secretary of transportation who many people like, but he just doesn't talk about airlines all that much. And so maybe Mr. Washington can help uh, educate Mr. Buttigieg about how important the airlines really are to the U.S. (laughs) Well, we'll be right back with our conversation with Graham Webb from Pratt & Whitney. And as a reminder, Seabury Securities is a specialty finance and investment banking firm boasting a 25-year track record of advising aviation clients around the world. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at SeaburySecurities.com. This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by Sidley Austin. From the ramp to the boardroom, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies transforming the skies. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. We're pleased to have this week as our guest, Graham Webb from Pratt & Whitney. Uh, We're also very appreciative of Pratt & Whitney's sponsorship of Airlines Confidential. So it's great to learn more about their business. And I think Graham is just getting ready to take off for... Farnborough Air Show, so uh, we'll have a good conversation about that. Graham, welcome to Airlines Confidential. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, we always start this with a little self-introduction by our guests, so why don't you tell our listeners about your role at Pratt and also your career in aviation? Fantastic. So I'm um, the Chief Sustainability Officer for Pratt & Whitney. It's um, the, the first ever person that has been identified for this uh, for this role at Pratt & Whitney. And this follows a, about a 30-year career um, that I've had in, in engineering and aerospace, um, always in the area of, of technology and in, in product development and, and have been having had the, uh, shall we say, the opportunity to bring a, a wide range of, of propulsion systems as well as gas driven engines to market. I was the chief engineer uh, during the initial development of Pratt & Whitney's geared turbofan engines or GTF engines. Uh, going through the uh, technology demonstrator program through into the launch of, uh, of both what was at the time the, the Bombardier, Mitsubishi, and then Airbus and Embraer program. So uh, through that whole entire period. And, uh, you know, at this point, I'm enjoying having the ability to bring my collective experience and background from uh, those experiences um, and, and helping to support Pratt & Whitney as the Chief Sustainability Officer, as we continue uh, our role as a leader in sustainable propulsion and and, and focusing on trying to bring breakthrough technologies um, into fruition that enable us to support our customers and, and, and I think more importantly, decouple the enormous benefits that aviation brings as a key enabler for globalization and and the associated societal and economic impacts from our environmental impact. And that's my focus. 
Well, we're really happy to have you here, Graham. And with the industry's 2050 goal to be net zero, I'm sure your role is critical at Pratt. So we're recording this just a few days before the start of the Farnborough Air Show. And there are several main themes that the show's been dealing with lately. And we'd like to talk about several that are most critical to commercial aviation. So let's talk first about your role at sustainability. Every week, we promote the GTF engines, thanks to your generous support. So talk to us about GTF engines and the other pillars of your company's sustainability priorities. Well, thank you. I love talking about GTF engines. GTF gives us the foundation. Um, we, we need to get the most out of our next-gen technologies going forward. And, and, and this is because the, the architecture of the, the GTF engine lets us run every piece of the engine, every module at its optimal speed for both larger diameter fans with smaller diameter, higher pressure ratio turbo machinery. Um, and, and this is how, when we first brought the architecture to the market, we were able to get a 16 to 20% improvement in fuel efficiency and also reduction in carbon dioxide over prior generation of engines. And, and to date, we've saved over 800 million gallons of fuel and avoided over 8 million metric tons of CO2 emissions, while at the same time uh, reducing NOx emissions by 50% and reducing the noise footprint by 75% of those prior engines. It, it really underpins our entire sustainability strategy. And recently, we've gone on beyond the what we call the base GTF engine, and we've introduced the, the GTF Advantage engine, which, which delivers um, additional takeoff thrust, about 4% at sea level and, and 8% at, at high altitude or high elevation airports. And at the same time, delivers a, another 1% improvement in fuel efficiency. And as well, we've demonstrated the engine can run on 100% sustainable aviation fuel. So... We're excited on this engine. We've got over 2,000 hours of, of testing uh, completed through our validation, and we're and we're now working through the, the final critical certification engine tests on our route to get the uh, certification of this engine next year. We continue to leverage the GTF architecture um, as we move forward into the future beyond the advantage, um, working to to both increase the bypass ratio with um, higher gear ratios and and also increasing the deployment of composite materials for reducing weight and also increasing the temperature capability, as well as the pressures present in the core of the engine, um, you know, using advanced materials such as ceramic matrix composites and, and coatings, as well as aerodynamic cooling and sealing technologies. So that's our prime focus on GTF, which is our, our foundation and the element that we're investing um, a significant amount of our efforts for continued development. And, and the three core pillars of our sustainability strategy are smarter technology, which is continually advancing fuel efficiency and aircraft propulsion systems. The second is cleaner fuels, you know, supporting the transition to cleaner non-fossil based fuels is, is critical to achieving net zero emissions by 2050. And then greener business, um, sustainability starts at home for the GTF. And, and, and that's really the pillars of our, of our overall sustainability uh, strategy as we move forward, smarter, cleaner, and greener. So Graham, within the sustainability space, there's a lot of talk about sustainable aviation fuel. I've got kind of a multi-tiered question around that. There are multiple technologies being developed. How's Pratt & Whitney prioritizing your investments in these various fuel options? What are the most achievable in the short term and what are the most promising in the long run? 
That is a very challenging multi-part question, I have to say. And, and the answer, and I'm going to span across um, a, a spectrum of, of both fuels and technologies. And so initially, in terms of right now, short-term achievable, sustainable aviation fuels are, are a technology that's ready now. They're, they're approved by the ASTM uh, D1655. They're, they're a drop-in solution that works with today's infra, you know, existing infrastructure. And, and, and assets, they, they have a key role to play for the aviation industry to meet our, our 2050 CO2 emission reduction goals. And, and right now, we're not only working um, with the regulators to, to expand the number of, of sustainable aviation fuels that are available, but we're also working um, on what we call a 100% sustainable aviation fuel or, or an unblended uh, sustainable aviation fuel specification uh, jointly with our efforts through uh, CAFI, which is the Commercial Aviation Alternative Fuels Initiative, um, as well as ASTM International. And, and, and it's why we've been testing all of our engines to run on these 100% sustainable aviation fuels and are, are partnering with customers you know, to test these engines. And you know, just a, a quick rundown, you know, we recently ran on a ATR-72 aircraft um, that was uh, you know, the Swedish airline Ravens, we, we ran our PW-127M engines, both of which were powered by 100% sustainable aviation fuels. And, and this is the first, to our knowledge, time that this has ever been accomplished uh, by our turboprop engine. So it was a kind of a key milestone for us. Right after that, we, um, we flew the Embraer E-195E2 aircraft that's powered by our, our GTF engines, also running on 100% SAF, only one engine at that time. Um, and, and again, validating that the engines as well as the, the aircraft can fly um, with blends of, uh, or actually with 100% sustainable aviation fuel without compromising either safety or performance. And then right after we flew that, um, we flew the Airbus A320neo aircraft with our, um, with our GTF engines, again, running one on 100% SAP. And at the same time, we've been partnering with AirBP to, to, to work on and evaluate additional sustainable aviation fuels that they're working on in their technology pipeline so that we're enabling them to go faster and as well to ensure that we have full compatibility with our engines. Um, and then, you know, another element of short-term achievable is what I already talked about with your turbofan engines is, is thermal engine efficiency. And, you know, we're, we're working multiple technologies for, for our future thermal engines, um, in, including the, the gear turbofan, which has a, a very long runway for growth and evolution. And, as I mentioned previously, aerodynamic heat transfer and advanced materials technologies are being inserted to drive performance there. As we go out a little further in time, um, we're highly interested in hybrid electric propulsion systems. Um, and, and they're, you know, for most of our aviation market segments from, from regional turboprops all the way up to the, to the single aisle market space, um, as, in addition to some of the military applications, you know, we're, we're looking at you know, opportunities, uh, working closely with our, our Collins Aerospace Division, which has tremendous capability and experience in, in electrical, um, uh, I'll call them power plant technologies. And the combination of, of our two efforts, both us and Collins, is, is truly a dream team, you know, marrying the world's greatest manufacturer and designer of thermal engines with you know, a company that has equivalent strength and capability in electrical drivetrains, it's really driving us the ability to, to optimize efficiency and capability throughout the flight envelope when you're marrying those two um, together. And, and an example of this is, you know, we have a, 
a regional turboprop hybrid electric propulsion technology demonstrator that we're partnering with uh, de Havilland Collins as well um, is, is part of the partner on a Dash 8 aircraft. Um, and, and in this case, we're, we're targeting a 30% improvement in fuel burn and, and, and a commensurate 30% improvement in carbon dioxide emissions for this thermal electric uh, technology demonstrator. And then as we go out into the longer range, we see the emergence of, um, of hydrogen as a potential fuel as we see the capacity and capability of specifically green hydrogen um, as opposed to gray hydrogen, which is made by reforming high, uh, methane and, and, and actually reduces more carbon dioxide than, than uh, you know, burning jet fuel itself. And, and so as such, as, as that green hydrogen or pink hydrogen, which is made by nuclear power, becomes available, it, it offers the potential for uh, zero emissions flight. And so we've been working with the U.S. Department of Energy's uh, ARPA-E program to develop um, a unique hydrogen propulsion technology. We, we call this HiSight. And this, this uh, technology, this, this, uh, this engine uh, concept, takes full advantage of the cryogenic properties of, of minus 253 liquid hydrogen fuel. Um, and it enables us to generate up to a 35% more efficiency with 80% less NOx than, than what we would experience in today's most efficient single-aisle aircraft. And, and so we're highly excited by that and, and the technology, and, and, and we're working that ourselves as, as well as discussions with, with airframers. But we, we kind of recognize that it's, it's going to take time for the infrastructure, the hydrogen infrastructure and ecology to develop to support hydrogen flight at scale and, and and, and there are admittedly some challenges with airframe designs. Um, specifically, hydrogen has four times the volume um, for an equivalent amount of volumetric energy to go from point A to point B than jet fuel. And, and so that challenge, um, you know, is something that drives weight and, and drag in an aircraft frame. But um, we, we recognize that as we continue to work these highly efficient engines, that reduces the amount of hydrogen that are needed to be carried. And then... At the second time, we also recognize that, that hydrogen is needed as a, as, a, as a key feedstock for the production of sustainable aviation fuels, which we view can provide emissions you know, now until that hydrogen ecology um, or economy uh, emerges. Graham, that's that's quite a bit that Pratt is doing to get the industry really sustainable. I have a question about SAF or sustainable aviation fuel. And in full disclosure, I'm not a fuel engineer or a power plant engineer. So this may be a really dumb question. But my question is, is there any risk you think or any real risk? that over time we may see some maintenance issues as a result of using uh, SAF versus traditional aviation fuel? I mean, might it gunk up things more or is that something we're just not going to know for a while? Or how much work has been done to sort of predict that idea? Well, I mean, I, I can talk to you about where we are today. And of course, you know, sustainable aviation fuel technology continues to develop and evolve. But the majority of what we've been evaluating is um, hydro-treated esters and, and, and basically synthetic paraffinic kerosenes. And w what we find is that those fuels burn cleaner than, I'll call it, conventional kerosene or Jet-A. Um, and, and that's because they don't contain, typically, the aromatic compounds that don't break down and, and create that, that 
you know, first of all, non-volatile particulate matter, which is, you know, a pollutant, you know, and we'll call that the soot that comes out the back of the engines that you can see if they're not, um, you know, properly designed from a combustion standpoint or, or you know, maintained. Um, and, and then also, you know, that is the compound that is residual that ends up gunking up when you when you start talking about gunking up maintenance, um, you know, when you get into the compartments, the fuel wetted compartments that, um, you know, are typically used to get to high temperature, you know, again, it, it results in, in, in lower risk of, of that kind of a uh, effect. But, you know, I, I'll just term all that is that currently the current HEF-SPK, um, you know, hydrotreated esters and fatty acids, synthetic paraffinic kerosenes, you know, that's what we're finding. But as we go into additional um, sustainable aviation fuels, we may find issues that have to be um, ad addressed, but you know, I'll just state it that at least we're not expecting that that's going to be the challenge. Um, at least at this time, they're, they're going to be, you know, let's say cleaner fuels. We'll have more of our discussion with Graham in just a moment, but not before we thank our friends at Aerodata. If you're in the air transport business, you need to know the name Aerodata. For three decades, Aerodata has helped airlines get more from their operations with its aircraft performance, weight and balance, and load planning tools, and more. Visit aerodata.co to learn more and see how the Aerodata team can make a difference for your air carrier operation. You kind of hinted at my next question in your previous response, but I'm going to push you a little bit more. As we look towards the industry's goals for net zero, where are the greatest possibilities with regard to reductions? Is it engine technologies you talked about composites is it yeah. aircraft and yeah. fuselage is it on the ground technologies you know how are we going to get there <laughs> well you know if you if you look at um like the net zero roadmap there's there's kind of four major pieces you know one would be the um the aircraft technologies the engine technologies the next would be operational improvements um you know from improving air traffic management or ground operations. Um, and, and then, you know, the, the biggest piece is, is typically, we'll call it alternative aviation fuels, whether they be sustainable aviation fuels um, that, you know, have a, an overall net zero balance uh, that is reduce, reduction, reducing carbon emissions or, you know, zero emission fuels such as hydrogen. You know, that's the biggest piece of the pie. And then there's an element that's what we'll call market-based measures, out-of-sector measures that are required. But when we when we talk about the piece that we can actively control as an industry, which is really the engine, aircraft, and airport operations piece, um, you know, they're all integrated systems. And so it's, it's really kind of hard to separate, you know, one from another and say one is more important than another because uh, they all have to be um, purposefully designed to work in concert with each other. And so that's my, you know, kind of, I would say, um, my punt to your question is, is that, you know, for me to be able to devise a, an incredible propulsion system, I have to have um, an aircraft manufacturer that can take that propulsion system and integrate it into the aircraft or airframe and make that airframe deliver a fuel burn and a carbon dioxide reduction capability that then is working with the overall management system for the aircraft, whether it be you know, ground transportation, using for sake of discussion, electrical power to, to, to power the, the aircraft, you know, all the way up to takeoff, 
um, air traffic management systems to enable more efficient utilization of the aircraft during their, their flight operations. And even if we start going into some of the new areas that are emerging, contrails, you know, we're, we're working on, you know, a variety of systems that could enable the aircraft to avoid the weather conditions that could result in contrail formation on an automated basis and, and do it in a way that doesn't result in a significant amount of incremental fuel burn, you know, to, to dodge the traffic, so to speak. And, and that's bringing together a number of systems that, that Raytheon has, you know, in between specifically Collins and, and our Raytheon intelligence and space businesses. So, um, you know, I, I, I'd have to say that all three are important. Which one is more important is, is really hard to specify because it's all an integrated system and they all have to work together. Well, Graham, we've talked a lot about sustainability, but my guess is Pratt is such an innovative company. What are other future of flight innovations that you could talk about that Pratt might be coming up with soon that you could share anyway? <laughs> Okay, well, you know, we'll, we'll go through some of them. You know, the, the future of flight is sustainable aviation, and, and that's for sure. That is the direction the market is heading, and, and that is where we are focused with all of our, our technology and future product development. Um, you know, and, and as I, I mentioned previously, as we understand the impact of contrails more, you know, we're going to start working on, on contrail avoidance. And then we also need to start focusing on reducing NOx emissions, which is another major pollutant that's not as well understood as CO2. Hybrid electric is something that we think represents the next step change in aviation. It'll start off in the small aircraft and then it's going to grow to larger engines as these technologies mature and become more efficient. Um, and then, you know, the potential for small to, to medium-sized hydrogen-fueled aircraft, you know, that come into the market um, as the required infrastructure needed to produce and deliver the cryogenic green hydrogen at, at multiple city pair airports comes to fruition. And, and so, you know, all of this is going to require us to have different um, technology solutions as, as well as working with the airframes on, on new and even different looking aircraft, um, such as blended wing configuration that, that, that would provide the increased volume that's needed on board for cryogenic hydrogen fuel tanks. We're going to switch it up a bit. Farmer has also made workforce development a priority. I'm sure there's There'll be a lot of discussions about that uh, over the next week. How is Pratt feeling about your efforts to build a more diverse workforce? And how are you adapting to this changing workplace we're all dealing with, with remote work and the like? Obviously, that doesn't work for manufacturing, but for engineers and other office workers, how are you adapting to this new uh, paradigm? So as a company with a global footprint, we deploy our resources around the world you know, to cultivate STEM skills um, and, and bring in diverse thinking and leadership capabilities. And, and that's you know, critical for us to, to make sure that we have and, and ensure that we have a diverse talent pool for the future. Um, through, through the pandemic, uh, we, we learned we can work well remotely. And, and right now, we, we've done that successfully for two and a half, almost three years. And we're evolving into what we call a hybrid work model as we see the value in employees collaborating in person, um, especially when it comes to innovation, um, you know, getting people together in rooms, bouncing off ideas is pretty critical to do in a, on a face-to-face basis. We've outlined our, our commitment to become a, a more diverse workforce in the recently published uh, RTX ESG report. And, and that includes um, achieving 50% 
women in executive level talent and, and doubling the representation of, of U.S. people of color in executive ranks uh, relative to a 2020 baseline by 2035. And, you know, we're also investing in STEM programs in underrepresented communities, and, and we've launched a, a global e-STEM award to encourage more young people to pursue a career in, in STEM. And, and we work to transform our energy resource groups, our, our employee research groups, our ERGs, uh, which have long been a vital part of our culture. And we now have nine of those the globally, and they give voice to the diverse communities that make up our workforce. And, and we've even established a, a global DEI or diversity, equity, and inclusion advisory board of, of senior leaders from across all of our business units to give oversight and governance of our overall strategy and activities. And certainly sustainability. It's a focus for our sustainable propulsion as well as our operations. And, and this is very important to our employees. You know, a number of our, our employees have core values and principles that are based on uh, having a more sustainable future. And, and, and as such, our, our sustainability strategy also supports our abilities to attract and retain talent. Well, Graham, I've become passionate about finding ways to broaden the net of getting people interested in this terrific industry we all work in. So thank you for helping with that, too. I think that's a great initiative. Well, something you just said brings up a great topic for our last question here, which is, what do you think about business travel? You talked about Pratt getting comfortable with hybrid work. So are other companies. You know, we know a lot of people are going to Farnborough. That's going to be business travel. But where do you think about or where does Pratt think about business travel, not only for your own company's activities, but as you think about the industry and the demand for your engines? So, you know, we have predicted in, in, that the return of, of 2019 business travel levels is, is going to happen as early as next year. And, and this is based on... Um, you know, recent TSA data, and, and I would have to state that it, it seems to be tracking that we're coming back. And, and, and as you mentioned, like other companies, we continue doing business via remote tools um, using Zoom and other mechanism MS Teams, but we, we know the value face-to-face uh, -face meetings have, and, and, and that's unfortunately they can't, that, that value, that trust can't be accomplished over a video call. Um, and, and so we certainly view that, you know, business travel will pick up and we've made inroads into making engines more efficient. Uh, the, the GTF in service right now offers, you know, world meeting efficiency, world class efficiency. And, and soon we're going to augment that with a, a GTF Advantage engine. And, and, and both of these provide opportunities for our customers to renew their fleets and uh, you know, reduce both the fuel burn and, and greenhouse gas emissions, you know, from their fundamental operations. And then, you know, the, the other elements I'll state is that, you, you know, we see a number of our, um, not you know, practically direct customers, but a number of airline customers that are also looking at methods to offset the impact of their business travel. Um, and, and certainly uh, to the extent that, that they are helping to promote the improved and increased uses of sustainable aviation fuels, you know, that's another benefit that we would see where, you know, people can use that, that business travel to, to not only execute their business and, and, and benefit their operations and, and grow the trust with their customers that's needed to sustain, you know, long-term um, business growth, but, but also do it in a way that's sustainable by the combination of fuel-efficient aircraft flying 
with sustainable aviation fuels and to the extent that's necessary, offsetting that with um, you know, market-based credits. Well, Graham, this has been terrific and a very uplifting and positive kind of outlook on the future of the industry and the planet both. We really appreciate you coming on the show. I know Chris and I learned a lot. I'm sure our listeners will too. Thank you also for your support of the show. And we wish you safe travels to Farnborough and hope it's a really successful show. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure being on the show with you guys. Thanks very much, Graham. We'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. Promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net is now boarding. This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by Aerodata, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. Aerodata is a Garmin company. Chris, that was a fun discussion with Graham. It's good to see how Pratt is thinking not only about how to meet the airline's needs for today, but also the future. Definitely agree. Um, And just like he took our questions, we love your questions. So please keep them coming via our mailbox at questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts. Ben, we didn't cover this in the news section, but we had this question in the queue, and it's about the SAS bankruptcy. It's from DAG in Virginia. Hi, Ben and Chris. First of all, thank you for putting the time in to share your knowledge with everybody through this podcast. I have a direct flight from Dulles to Copenhagen on SAS in August. In the news, however, I saw that SAS is having a pilot strike, canceled half their flights, and has now filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. This ticket was purchased long in advance, so any canceling and buying a new one will result in much higher fares. My two-part question, what do you think about the fate of SAS on the whole? And two, what should I do to make my flight successful? Well, thank you, Dag. And unfortunately, I don't think you're in the best situation here. And here's why I say that. SAS has filed bankruptcy in the U.S., which means they're going to follow the process that we use here. The good news about that is they will likely keep flying. The bad news is that they've asked their pilots for a big cut in pay in order to remain competitive, and the pilots have reacted negatively to that. Just recently, the CEO, Anko Vanderwerf, who's a who's a good guy and who I think wants to do the right thing, he has asked that everybody get back around the negotiating table and let's talk about this again. So I'm somewhat optimistic that your flight will run in August from Dulles to Copenhagen, but there's also a risk it's not going to. So what I would do is I would literally talk to SAS and call them, or SAS, every day between now and (laughs) August. And just ask, is this flight still going? Is this flight still going? Is this flight still going? And if it's not, what are you going to do for me? Because when the airline's in bankruptcy, as Chris and I know, having been at U.S. Airways through bankruptcy, one of the things that you ask the judge early on 
is for flexibility in dealing with passengers that are disrupted by your bankruptcy. So it's very possible that they may have some option for you that if their flight isn't operating, maybe they'll be able to put you on United or Delta or another carrier or help you get to um, Copenhagen some other way. But that's not going to just happen if you wait until your departure day. I would literally call them every day and you'll learn from that and you'll get better confidence that the flight's going to happen or information about what tools might be available to you if it's not going to happen. Chris, can you think of something else to tell Dag? Uh, no, I think you covered most of it. Well, I take that back. I do have a couple of other things. You know, this combines this unique situation of a U.S. court-supervised bankruptcy, which provides flexibility and reorganization versus some other nation's bankruptcy laws, which basically result in liquidation. So there is a strong chance of SAS successfully reorganizing if they can get the funding. But it's layered with international labor laws, which are much different and can result in kind of these wildcat strikes or very kind of spontaneous strikes like what you're seeing right now versus U.S. labor law that is very methodical and has multiple steps before a strike can happen. So that's where this is one of those unique situations. And there are a number of international carriers who do reorganize in the U.S. versus their home countries because of the more favorable bankruptcy laws. So that would be an interesting discussion to have the Sidley folks on to talk about, you know, why is Avianca and why are SAS management teams coming to the U.S. to reorganize versus their own their own nations and their bankruptcy laws? But um, you, you do have that combination of uh, somewhat opposing conditions. That's a great idea to ask Sidley to come on and talk about that. I'll reach out to them and I bet they'll do that. And then, Ben, we have a question from Peter from Connecticut, whose inquiry is kind of apropos of the current summer scheduling and operations challenges we talked about a few minutes ago. Hi, Ben and Chris. Given the latest round of irregular operations and how long it's taking to recover from them, do you think it's time to limit capacity? And I can see you're kind of squirming in your chair, Ben. I can hear it already. I know most airplanes need somewhere between 70 to 80% load factors to break even. However, many average load factors right now are in the 90% range, meaning flights are fuller than ever. The problem I see is when an airline enters an irregular operation, there is no room to rebook passengers. The passengers can't rebook for days. After their original itinerary, those net promoter scores will probably take a hit and a bunch of other things too. And it's not just the net promoter scores. Would an airline revenue management team start overpricing certain seats on an airplane to cool demand, to have some more wiggle room to recover? Or does this create a prisoner's dilemma amongst the carriers? I've always viewed IROPS as getting a shot at the doctor's office. You want it to be over quick. The goal of an airline should be to lose as little money as possible in a short amount of time. So does restricting seats or pricing people out to complete the recovery time frame make more sense? And P.S., add Blue Streak by Barbara Peterson to the book list. 
Well, thank you, Peter. I'll start with the easy thing first. We will add Blue Streak to the book list. <laughs> now the harder part. I'm not sure the idea of restricting seats makes sense. I mean, you pay for to put the seats in. If you say, I'm only going to sell 70% of the seats, why not take out 30% of the seats and give everybody more room if you're really never going to sell more than 70%? The idea that you're creating space on your airline to recover when things go wrong is almost building too much safety net within the system itself, I think. I think a better answer is an industry solution rather than an airline-specific solution. While any one individual airline may have a problem reaccommodating its passengers in a reasonable time in an IROP. That doesn't mean that there aren't other carriers that may have more empty seats that could help out with that. And there isn't enough coordination within the industry to use all of the available industry seats to take care of disrupted passengers when they happen. Some airlines play friendly with others, but not with other airlines. Some have no partners, some have partners. But if the industry broadly said, when there's an IROP, we're going to take every empty seat on the industry and find ways to help disrupted people. Maybe you were connecting through Charlotte, now you'll connect through Atlanta. Or maybe you were connecting through Detroit, now you'll connect through Chicago, but we'll get you to where you're going. I think that's a better answer than purposely not selling all the seats you have. The problem with not selling all the seats you have is you are going to have to raise the prices significantly to make that work economically. Many people who can have reliable flights will be priced out and you'll not be allowing them to fly even when it's sunny out because you're creating that space. So I think there are better ways to do it than you're suggesting. But I'm empathetic to your idea that airlines can do better in an IROP. Well, and we talked about incentives earlier, like incenting the American pilots to pick up these trips or incenting passengers to behave in certain ways by taking money to get off a plane. Maybe there should be some stronger disincentives for carriers who don't enter into interline agreements. I mean, maybe it should be, I mean, you can't make it mandatory as much as make it really painful. If you want to go alone, you know, how do we put you on the bottom of some priority lists? That makes some sense too, Chris. Not easy answers on this one. And if any listeners have some other ideas, please send them in. We'll talk about them. Well, let's get this week's show to the gate. But before you debark, here's time for our shout outs. Chris, my shout out goes to Airbus. They're a big company, so maybe they don't deserve a shout out. But for the first half of this year, they've sold pretty well. And they have a 
good backlog of airplanes. And most importantly, they've started to sell wide bodies again in a pretty big way, especially the A330-900. And the selling of wide bodies suggests that airlines are more bullish about long haul international travel. And that's a real positive thing. So for Airbus to sell more wide bodies, I also hope Boeing sells more too. That's my shout out for the week. Okay, that's a good one. And we'll see what we hear out of Farnborough uh, over the coming days and weeks. I'm going to give my shout out to Betty Nash, the legendary flight attendant who at age 86 still flies for American Airlines and was just recognized by the Guinness Book of World Records for being the longest serving flight attendant. She'll be marking 65 years in the cabin in September. Betty started with Eastern Airlines and moved to U.S. Airways before becoming part of the American family. I think we need to raise a Guinness to Betty for her Guinness-worthy achievements. I hope every flight she flies, she's recognized by the captain or the flight crew as to who she is, and I bet everybody would clap for her. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, have a great week, everyone, and thanks for listening to Airlines Confidential. Take care. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.